This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joy Chan. Mysticism A Study in Nature and Development of Spiritual Consciousness by Evelyn Underhill. Second Half of Part One, Chapter Four. Over and over again, the great mystics tell us, not how they speculated, but how they acted. To them, the transition from the life of sense to the life of spirit is a formidable undertaking, which demands effort and constancy. The paradoxical quiet of the contemplative is but the outward stillness essential to inward work. Their favorite symbols are those of action, battle, search, and pilgrimage. In an obscure night, fevered with love's anxiety, O hapless, happy plight, I went, none seeing me, forth from my house, where all things quiet be, said St. John of the Cross, in his poem of the mystic quest. It became evident to me, says Al-Ghazali of his own search for mystic truth, that the Sufis are men of intuition and not men of words. I recognized that I had learnt all that can be learnt by Sufism by study, and that the rest could not be learnt by study or by speech. Let no one suppose, says the theologia Germanica, that we may attain to this true light and perfect knowledge by hearsay, or by reading and study, nor yet by high skill and great learning. It is not enough, says Gerlach Peterson, to know by estimation merely, but we must know by experience. So Mechthild of Magdeburg says of her revelations, the writing of this book was seen, heard and experienced in every limb. I see it with the eyes of my soul, and hear it with the ears of my eternal spirit. Those who suppose mystical experience to be merely a pleasing consciousness of the divine in the world, a sense of the otherness of things, a basking in the beams of the uncreated light, are only playing with reality. True mystical achievement is the most complete and most difficult expression of life which is as yet possible to man. It is at once an act of love, an act of surrender, and an act of supreme perception, a trinity of experiences which meets and satisfies the three activities of the self. Religion might give us the first, and metaphysics the third of these processes. Only mysticism can offer the middle term of the series, the essential link which binds the three in one. Secrets, says St. Catherine of Siena, are revealed to a friend who has become one thing with his friend and not to a servant. 2. Mysticism is an entirely spiritual activity. This rule provides us with a further limitation, which of course excludes all the practices of magic and of magical religion, even in their most exalted and least materialistic forms. As we shall see when we come to consider these persons, their object, not necessarily an illegitimate one, is to improve and elucidate the visible by help of the invisible, to use the supernormal powers of the self for the increase of power, virtue, happiness.
happiness, or knowledge. The mystic never turns back on himself in this way, or tries to combine the advantages of two worlds. At the term of his development, he knows God by communion, and this direct intuition of the absolute kills all lesser cravings. He possesses God, and needs nothing more. Though he will spend himself unceasingly for other men, become an agent of the eternal goodness, he is destitute of supersensual ambitions, and craves no occult knowledge or power. Having his eyes set on eternity, his consciousness steeped in it, he can well afford to tolerate the entanglements of time. His spirit, says Toller, is as it were sunk and lost in the abyss of the deity, and loses the consciousness of all creature distinctions. All things are gathered together in one with the divine sweetness, and the man's being is so penetrated with the divine substance that he loses himself therein, as a drop of water is lost in a cask of strong wine. And thus the man's spirit is so sunk in God in divine union that he loses all sense of distinction, and there remains a secret, still union, without cloud or colour. I wish not, said St. Catherine of Genoa, for anything that comes forth from thee, but only for thee, O sweetest love. Whatever share of this world, says Rabia, thou dost bestow on me, bestow it on thine enemies, and whatever share of the next world thou dost give me, give it to thy friends. Thou art enough for me. The soul, says Plotinus, in one of his most profound passages, having now arrived at the desired end, and participating of deity, will know that the supplier of true life is then present. She will likewise then require nothing farther, for, on the contrary, it will be requisite to lay aside other things, to stop in this alone, amputating everything else with which she is surrounded. 3. The business and method of mysticism is love. Here is one of the distinctive notes of true mysticism, marking it off from every other kind of transcendental theory and practice, and providing the answer to the question with which our last chapter closed. It is the eager, outgoing activity whose driving power is generous love, not the absorbent, indrawing activity which strives only for new knowledge that is fruitful in the spiritual as well as in the physical world. Having said this, however, we must add, as we did when speaking of the heart, that the word love as applied to the mystics is to be understood in its deepest, fullest sense, as the ultimate expression of the self's most vital tendencies, not as the superficial affection or emotion often dignified by this name. Mystic love is a total dedication of the will, the deep-seated desire and tendency of the soul towards its source. It is a condition of humble access, a life movement of the self, more direct in its methods, more valid in its results, even in the hands of the least lettered of its adepts, than the most piercing intellectual vision of the greatest philosophic mind. Again and again the mystics insist upon this, for silence is not God, nor speaking is not God. Fasting is not God, nor eating is not God. Onliness is not God, nor company is not God. 
nor yet any of all the other two such quantities. He is hid between them, and may not be found by any work of thy soul, but all only by love of thine heart. He may not be known by reason, he may not be gotten by thought, nor concluded by understanding. But he may be loved, and chosen with the true lovely will of thine heart. Such a blind shot with the sharp dart of longing love may never fail of the prick, the which is God. Come down quickly, says the incomprehensible Godhead, to the soul that has struggled, like Zacchaeus, to the topmost branches of the theological tree. For I would dwell with you today. And this hasty descent to which he is summoned by God is simply a descent by love and desire into that abyss of the Godhead which the intellect cannot understand. But where intelligence must rest without, love and desire can enter in. Volumes of extracts might be compiled from the works of the mystics illustrative of this rule, which is indeed their central principle. Some there are, says Plotinus, that for all their effort have not attained the vision. The soul in them has come to no sense of the splendour there. It has not taken warmth. It has not felt burning within itself the flame of love for what is there to know. Love, says Roll, truly suffers not a loving soul to bide in itself, but ravishes it out to the lover, that the soul is more there where it loves than where the body is that lives and feels it. O singular joy of love everlasting, he says again, that ravishes all his to heavens above all worlds, them binding with bands of virtue. O dear charity, it earth that has thee not is not wrought, whatever it hath. He truly in thee that is busy, to joy above earthly is soon lifted. Thou makest men contemplative, heaven gate thou openest, mouths of accusers thou dost shut. God thou makest to be seen, and multitudes of sins thou hidest. We praise thee, we preach thee. By thee the world we quickly overcome, by whom we joy, and the heavenly ladder we ascend. Love to the mystic, then, is A, the active, cognitive expression of his will and desire for the absolute. B, his innate tendency to that absolute, his spiritual weight. He is only thoroughly natural, thoroughly alive, when he is obeying its voice. For him, it is the source of joy, the secret of the universe, the vivifying principle of things. In the words of Reisejah, mysticism claims to be able to know that unknowable without any help from dialectics, and believes that, by the way of love and will, it reaches a point to which thought alone is unable to attain. Again, it is the heart and never the reason which leads us to the absolute. Hence in St. Catherine of Siena's exquisite allegory, it is the feet of the soul's affection which brings it first to the bridge, for the feet carry the body as affection carries the soul. The jewels of mystical literature glow with this intimate and impassioned love of the absolute, which transcends the dogmatic language in which it is clothed, and becomes applicable to mystics of every race and creed. There is little difference in this between the extremes of Eastern and Western thought, between Akempis the Christian and Jalaluddin the Muslim saint. How great a thing is love, 
great above all other goods, for alone it makes all that is heavy light, and bears evenly all that is uneven. Love would be aloft, nor will it be kept back by any lower thing. Love would be free, and estranged from all worldly affection, that its inward sight be not hindered, that it may not be entangled by any temporal comfort, nor succumb to any tribulation. Nought is sweeter than love, nought stronger, nought higher, nought wider. There is no more joyous, fuller, better thing in heaven or earth. For love is born of God, and cannot rest save in God, above all created things. The lover flies, runs, and rejoices. He is free, and cannot be restrained. He gives all for all, and has all in all. For he rests in one supreme above all, from whom all good flows and proceeds. He looks not at the gift, but above all goods turns himself to the giver. He who loves knows the cry of this voice, for this burning affection of the soul is a loud cry in the ears of God when it saith, My God, my love, thou art all mine, and I am all thine. So much for the Christian. Now for the Persian mystic, while the thought of the Beloved fills our hearts, all our work is to do him service and spend life for him. Wherever he kindles his destructive torch, myriads of lovers' souls are burnt therewith. The lovers who dwell within the sanctuary are moths burnt with the touch of the Beloved's face. O heart, hasten thither, for God will shine upon you, and seem to you a sweet garden instead of a terror. He will infuse into your soul a new soul, so as to fill you, like a goblet, with wine. Take up your abode in his soul, take up your abode in heaven, O bright full moon. Like the heavenly scribe, he will open your heart's book, that he may reveal mysteries unto you. Well might Hilton say that perfect love maketh God, and the soul to be as if they both together were but one thing. And Tola that the well of life is love, and he who dwelleth not in love is dead. These, nevertheless, are objective and didactic utterances, though their substance may be, probably is, personal, their form is not. But if we want to see what it really means to be in love with the Absolute, how intensely actual to the mystic is the object of his passion, how far removed from the spheres of pious duty or philosophic speculation, how concrete, positive, and dominant such a passion may be. We must study the literature of autobiography, not that of poetry or exhortation. I choose for this purpose, rather than the well-known self-analyses of St. Augustine, St. Teresa, or Suso, which are accessible to every one, the more private confessions of that remarkable mystic, Dame Gertrude Moore, contained in her spiritual exercises. This nun, great-great-granddaughter of Sir Thomas More, and favourite pupil of the celebrated Benedictine contemplative, the Venerable Augustine Baker, exhibits the romantic and personal side of mysticism more perfectly than even St. Teresa, whose works were composed for her daughter's edification. She was an eager student of St. Augustine, my dear, dear saint, as she calls him more than once, he had evidently influenced her language, but her passion is her own. 
Remember that Gertrude Moore's confessions represent the most secret conversations of her soul with God. They were not meant for publication, but written for the most part on blank leaves in her breviary, were discovered and published after her death. She called them, says the title page with touching simplicity, Amor Ordinum Desjit, an idiot's devotions. Her only spiritual father and director, Father Baker, styled them Confessionis Amantis, a lover's confessions. Amens Deum Anima Sub Deo Despicit Universa, a soul that loveth God despiseth all things that be inferior unto God. The spirit of her little book is summed up in two epigrams, epigrams of which her contemporary, Corshaw, might have been proud. To give all for love is a most sweet bargain. Oh, let me love or not live. Love indeed was her life, and she writes of it with a rapture which recalls at one moment the exuberant poetry of Jacopine da Todi, at another the love-songs of the Elizabethan poets. Never was there or can there be imagined such a love as is between an humble soul and thee. Who can express what passeth between such a soul and thee? Verily neither man nor angel is able to do it sufficiently. In thy praise I am only happy, in which, my joy, I will exult with all that love thee. For what can be a comfort while I live separated from thee, but only to remember that my God, who is more mine than I am my own, is absolutely and infinitely happy. Out of this true love between a soul and thee, there ariseth such a knowledge in the soul that it loatheth all that is an impediment to her further proceeding in the love of thee. O oh, love, love, even by naming thee my soul loseth itself in thee. Nothing can satiate a reasonable soul but only thou, and having of thee, who art indeed all, nothing could be said to be wanting to her. Blessed are the cleanse of heart, for they shall see God. O oh, sight to be wished, desired, and longed for, because once to have seen thee is to have learnt all things. Nothing can bring us to this sight but love. But what love must it be? Not a sensible love only, a childish love, a love which seeketh itself more than the beloved. No, no, but it must be an ardent love, a pure love, a courageous love, a love of charity, an humble love, and a constant love, not worn out with labours, not daunted with any difficulties. For that soul that hath set her whole love and desire on thee can never find any true satisfaction, but only in thee. Who will not see that we have here no literary exercise, but the fruits of an experience of peculiar intensity? It answers exactly to one of the best modern definitions of mysticism, as, in essence, the concentration of all the forces of the soul upon a supernatural object, conceived and loved as a living person. Love and desire, says the same critic, are the fundamental necessities, and where they are absent, man, even though he be a visionary, cannot be called a mystic. Such a definition, of course, is not complete. It is valuable, however, because it emphasizes the fact that all true mysticism is rooted in personality, and is therefore fundamentally a science of the heart. Attraction, desire, and union as the fulfillment of desire. This is the way life works, 
in the highest as in the lowest things. The mystic's outlook, indeed, is the lover's outlook. It has the same element of wildness, the same quality of selfless and quixotic devotion, the same combination of rapture and humility. This parallel is more than a pretty fancy, for mystic and lover, upon different planes, are alike responding to the call of the spirit of life. The language of human passion is tepid and insignificant beside the language in which the mystics try to tell the splendours of their love. They force upon the unprejudiced reader the conviction that they are dealing with an ardour far more burning for an object far more real. "'This monk can give lessons to lovers!' exclaimed Arthur Simons in astonishment of St. John of the Cross. "'It would be strange if he could not,' since their finite passions are but the feeble images of his infinite one, their beloved the imperfect symbol of his first and only fair. I saw him and sought him. I had him and I wanted him, says Julian of Norwich, in a phrase which seems to sum up all the ecstasy and longing of man's soul. Only this mystic passion can lead us from our prison. Its brother, the desire of knowledge, may enlarge and improve the premises to an extent as yet undreamed of, but it can never unlock the doors. 4. Mysticism entails a definite psychological experience. That is to say, it shows itself not merely as an attitude of mind and heart, but as a form of organic life. It is not only a theory of the intellect or a hunger, however passionate, of the heart. It involves the organizing of the whole self, conscious or unconscious, under the spur of such a hunger, a remaking of the whole character on high levels in the interests of the transcendental life. The mystics are emphatic in their statement that spiritual desires are useless unless they initiate this costly movement of the whole self towards the real. Thus in the visions of Mechthild of Magdeburg, the soul spake thus to her desire, Fare forth and see where my love is. Say to him that I desire to love. So desire sped forth, for she is quick of her nature, and came to the Empyrean and cried, Great Lord, open and let me in. Then said the householder of that place, What means this fiery eagerness? Desire replied, Lord, I would have thee know that my lady can no longer bear to live. If thou wouldst flow forth to her, then might she swim, but the fish cannot long exist that is left stranded on the shore. Go back, said the Lord. I will not let thee in, unless thou bring to me that hungry soul, for it is in this alone that I take delight. We have said that the full mystic consciousness is extended in two distinct directions. So too there are two distinct sides to the full mystical experience. A. The vision or consciousness of absolute perfection. B. The inward transmutation to which that vision compels the mystic, in order that he may be to some extent worthy of that which he has beheld, may take his place within the order of reality. He has seen the perfect, he wants to be perfect too. The third term, the necessary bridge between the absolute and the self, can only, he feels, be moral and spiritual transcendence, 
in a word, sanctity. For the only means of attaining the absolute lies in adapting ourselves to it. The moral virtues are for him, then, the obligatory ornaments of the spiritual marriage, as Rusburick called them, though far more than their presence is needed to bring that marriage about. Unless this impulse for moral perfection be born in him, this travail of the inner life begun, he is no mystic, though he may well be a visionary, a prophet, a mystical poet. Moreover, this process of transmutation, this rebuilding of the self on higher levels, will involve the establishment within the field of consciousness, the making central for life, of those subconscious spiritual perceptions which are the primary material of mystical experience. The end and object of this inward alchemy will be the raising of the whole self to the condition in which conscious and permanent union with the absolute takes place, and man, ascending to the summit of his manhood, enters into that greater life for which he was made. In its journey towards this union, the subject commonly passes through certain well-marked phases which constitute what is known as the mystic way. This statement rules out from the true mystic kingdom all merely sentimental and effective piety and visionary poetry, no less than mystical philosophy. It brings us back to our first proposition, the concrete and practical nature of the mystical act. More than the apprehension of God, then, more than the passion for the absolute, is needed to make a mystic. These must be combined with an appropriate psychological makeup, with a nature capable of extraordinary concentration, an exalted moral emotion, a nervous organization of the artistic type. All these are necessary to the successful development of the mystic life process. In the experience of those mystics who have left us the records of their own lives, the successive stages of this life process are always traceable. In the second part of this book, they will be found worked out at some length. Roll, Suso, St. Teresa, and many others have left us valuable self-analyses for comparison, and from them we see how arduous, how definite, and how far removed from mere emotional or intellectual activity is that educational discipline by which the eye which looks upon eternity is able to come to its own. One of the marks of the true mystic, says Luba, by no means a favourable witness, is the tenacious and heroic energy with which he pursues a definite moral ideal. He is, says Pachot, the pilgrim of an inward odyssey. Though we may be amazed and delighted by his adventures and discoveries on the way, to him the voyage and the end are all. The road on which we enter is a royal road which leads to heaven, says St. Teresa. Is it strange that the conquest of such a treasure should cost us rather dear? It is one of the many indirect testimonies to the objective reality of mysticism that the stages of this road, the psychology of the spiritual ascent, as described to us by different schools of contemplatives, always present practically the same sequence of states. The school for saints has never found it necessary to bring its curriculum up to date. The psychologist finds little difficulty, for instance, in reconciling the degrees of horizon described by St. Teresa. Recollection, quiet, union, ecstasy, rapt, the pain of God, and the spiritual marriage of the soul, 
with the four forms of contemplation enumerated by Hugh of St. Victor, or the Sufis' seven stages of the soul's ascent to God, which begin in adoration and end in spiritual marriage. Though each wayfarer may choose different landmarks, it is clear from their comparison that the road is one. 5. As a corollary to these four rules, it is perhaps well to reiterate the statement already made, that true mysticism is never self-seeking. It is not, as many think, the pursuit of supernatural joys, the satisfaction of a high ambition. The mystic does not enter on his quest because he desires the happiness of the beatific vision, the ecstasy of the union with the absolute, or any other personal reward. That noblest of all passions, the passion for perfection for love's sake, far outweighs the desire for transcendental satisfaction. O oh, love, said St. Catherine of Genoa, I do not wish to follow thee for sake of these delights, but solely from the motive of true love. Those who do otherwise are only, in the plain words of St. John of the Cross, spiritual gluttons, or, in the milder metaphor he adopted, magicians of the more high-minded sort. The true mystic claims no promises and makes no demands. He goes because he must, as Galahad went towards the grail, knowing that for those who can live it, this alone is life. He never rests in that search for God which he holds to be the fulfilment of his highest duty, yet he seeks without any certainty of success. He holds with St. Bernard that he alone is God who can never be sought in vain, not even when he cannot be found. With Mechthild of Magdeburg he hears the absolute saying in his soul, O soul, before the world was I longed for thee, and I still long for thee, and thou for me. Therefore, when our two desires unite, love shall be fulfilled. Like his type, the devout lover of romance, then, the mystic serves without hope of reward. By one of the many paradoxes of the spiritual life, he obtains satisfaction because he does not seek it, completes his personality because he gives it up. Attainment, says Dionysius the Areopagite, in words which are writ large on the annals of Christian ecstasy, comes only by means of this sincere, spontaneous, and entire surrender of yourself and all things. Only with the annihilation of selfhood comes the fulfilment of love. Were the mystic asked the cause of his often extraordinary behaviour, his austere and steadfast quest, it is unlikely that his reply would contain any reference to sublime illumination or unspeakable delights. It is more probable that he would answer in some such words as those of Jacob Boehm, I am not come to this meaning or to this work and knowledge through my own reason or through my own will and purpose. Neither have I sought this knowledge, nor so much as to know anything concerning it. I sought only for the heart of God, therein to hide myself. Whether we live or whether we die, said St. Paul, we are the Lord's. The mystic is a realist, to whom these words convey not a dogma but an invitation, an invitation to the soul to attain that fullness of life for which she was made, to lose herself in that which can be neither seen nor touched, giving herself entirely to this sovereign object 
without belonging either to herself or to others, united to the unknown by the most noble part of herself and because of her renouncement of knowledge, finally drawing from this absolute ignorance a knowledge which the understanding knows not how to attain. Mysticism, then, is seen as the one way out for the awakened spirit of man, healing that human incompleteness which is the origin of our divine unrest. I am sure, says Eckhart, that if a soul knew the very least of all that being means, it would never turn away from it. The mystics have never turned away. To do so would have seemed to them a self-destructive act. Here, in this world of illusion, they say, we have no continuing city. This statement, to you a proposition, is to us the central fact of life. Therefore it is necessary to hasten our departure from hence, and detach ourselves in so far as we may from the body to which we are fettered, in order that with the whole of ourselves we may fold ourselves about divinity, and have no part void of contact with him. To sum up, mysticism is seen to be a highly specialized form of that search for reality, for heightened and completed life, which we have found to be a constant characteristic of human consciousness. It is largely prosecuted by that spiritual spark, that transcendental faculty which, though the life of our life, remains below the threshold in ordinary men. Emerging from its hiddenness in the mystic, it gradually becomes the dominant factor in his life, subduing to its service and enhancing by its saving contact with reality those vital powers of love and will which we attribute to the heart, rather than those of mere reason and perception which we attribute to the head. Under the spur of this love and will, the whole personality rises in the acts of contemplation and ecstasy to a level of consciousness at which it becomes aware of a new field of perception. By this awareness, by this loving sight, it is stimulated to a new life in accordance with the reality which it has beheld. So strange and exalted is this life that it never fails to provoke either the anger or the admiration of other men. If the great Christian mystics, says Luba, could by some miracle be all brought together in the same place, each in his habitual environment, there to live according to his manner, the world would soon perceive that they constitute one of the most amazing and profound variations of which the human race has yet been witness. A discussion of mysticism, regarded as a form of human life, will therefore include two branches. First, the life process of the mystic, the remaking of his personality, the method by which his peculiar consciousness of the absolute is attained, and faculties which have been involved to meet the requirements of the phenomenal, are enabled to do work on the transcendental plane. This is the mystic way in which the self passes through the states or stages of development which were codified by the Neoplatonists, and after them by the medieval mystics as purgation, illumination, and ecstasy. Secondly, the content of the mystical field of perception, the revelation under which the contemplative becomes aware of the absolute. This will include a consideration of the so-called doctrines of mysticism, the attempts of the articulate mystic to sketch for us the world into which he has looked, in language which is only adequate to the world in which the rest of us dwell. Here the difficult question of symbolism and of symbolic theology comes in. 
a point upon which many promising expositions of the mystics have been wrecked. It will be our business to strip off as far as may be the symbolic wrapping, and attempt a synthesis of these doctrines, to resolve the apparent contradictions of objective and subjective revelations, of the ways of negation and affirmation, emanation and imminence, surrender and deification, the divine dark and the inward light, and finally, to exhibit if we can, the essential unity of that experience in which the human soul enters consciously into the presence of God. End of part one, chapter four.